You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, D'Souza, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Rin Ketzel, Long Knives Logan, G.D. Fraser, Casey, Felony Melanie, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Eli the Cartographer, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The character of Muslim conquest throughout the centuries doesn't have one single flavor. Early Islam was harsh with the pagan tribesmen in Arabia, but when they started moving into other lands, they took pains to deal fairly with other religions of the book. In most cases, Christians and Jews were taxed at the same level as Muslims. They often had an almost complete freedom of worship. Now, of course, this state of affairs didn't last. You know, with the territorial conflicts in the Byzantine Empire and then in Iberia and, of course, the Crusades, there was a lot of bad blood there. However, considering the treatment of pagans in the Middle East, one might think that any other non-Abrahamic faith peoples would receive the same kind of treatment, but that wasn't always the case. In India, after the Mughal conquest, Hindus weren't persecuted. And you know, you probably need some caveats there, like they weren't unusually persecuted or harshly persecuted. They were a conquered people, after all. But their taxes were not any higher than the Muslims paid. They were free to worship however they chose. For much of the imperial period, things like property rights were respected. Because the empire in India was not about faith or spreading their religion, it was about what most empires are about, land and power and money. Now, in part, this was just a simple question of logistics for the Mughal Empire. You know, there's a lot of people in India. 
mass conversion was going to be a difficult task, if it was even possible. I mean, physically rounding them up, that's just not going to happen. Even if you manage to kill every Hindu in India, which may have been the greatest mass slaughter in history, but even if that happened, then what? The Empire needed people to work the land, to farm spices and teas, and to do all of the things that made India a worthwhile conquest. So they left the Hindus religiously basically alone. So what you have in the Mughal Empire is a subcontinent of Hindu people ruled over by a relatively small aristocratic elite. But imagine that you've got, what, a billion people? Probably fewer in the late 17th century, but certainly hundreds of millions of people. And were they all converted to Islam, they would be expected to make that pilgrimage to Mecca at some point in their lives. That would be, well, the expense alone would be astronomical. You know, most Muslim states provided some kind of transport, and, of course, that required guards, and for a lot of those states, even some financial assistance to those who required it for their trip to Mecca. Offering those kind of services for the whole of India, well, that's just out of the question, even for the Grand Mughal Aurangzeb, the world conqueror, maybe the richest person in the world in the 1690s. Even for him, that would be a bit much to ask. So, you know, let the people worship their gods. Now, let me pose to you a question. Say you were involved in a heist, a big score, and you found out that the victims of that robbery would be a bunch of widows and orphans. Would you have second thoughts about going through with it, I certainly hope so. What if you found out it was a bunch of farmers and laborers, you know, blue-collar folks, regular working people? Would you still have second thoughts? Probably. But what if you found out that it was a casino magnate moving his cash, or the, the Queen's jewels, or Scrooge McDuck in a swimming pool full of gold coins? If that was who you were robbing... Would you feel the same kind of reservation? The same kind of guilt? You know, maybe. Robbery is still morally wrong, but then again, maybe not. Maybe you're fine with it. This is episode 220, The Gun's Way. We should remember that the sailors aboard Henry Avery's fancy man-o'-war were... Well, they were pirates and mutineers. They made a decision to be so. But at least those that set out with the Spanish expedition, they didn't intend to do so. They were just law-abiding sailors who took a job that they hoped would help them earn a decent living. But of course that prospect was ripped out from under them. The possibility of being sold into slavery under the king of Spain, well, that became very real. So they went rogue. Were that your reality? You know, not a hardened criminal, but somebody who found yourself in dire circumstances and forced into a state of outlawry, you might be more than happy to rob some rich, aristocratic types. That's a major factor in what's about to happen, but of course there's more to it than that. The rich people in question here happen to be Muslim. 
And in 17th century eyes, that makes robbing them, even killing them, almost a righteous act. You know, they're attacking the Turk, taking on the Moorish scourge, doing God's work. They're the new crusaders, right? And for the English on board, they believed that they were at the time at war with the Islamic world. Which is to say that for these pirates in the Indian Ocean, scruples and reservations aren't something that we need to think about. But of course, these discussions did take place. Sometime later, in the trials of some of the men aboard Fancy, they made it clear that Every was declaiming these kind of talking points and councils aboard their ship, reminding the men of the injustice they had faced of the threat of slavery, and then reminding them that they were going to attack the enemy, their king's enemy, in a righteous and godly act. Anyone who may have been thinking this was a bad idea, Henry Every talked them out of it. When we last left the pirates, Henry Every's fancy, William Mason's pearl, and Joseph Farrow's Portsmouth adventure had just captured a rich prize, the Fata Muhammad. You'll recall that, back at the Gate of Tears, the entrance to the Red Sea, after hearing word that the Mughal fleet had passed them by in the night, they set out at top speed to chase the fleet down. So fast, in fact, that they left Thomas II in the Amity and Thomas Wake in the Susanna behind. The chase lasted for ten days, and for ten days the pirates saw nothing. It was only when they drew near to a bay that would lead them to Surat, should they follow it, that they caught up with Fata Muhammad. But what the pirates here did not know was that at some point in their ten-day chase, they had actually passed the Mughal fleet. They all thought that Fata Muhammad was a straggler, that they'd managed to catch one of the last ships in the fleet. But instead, they had caught up with a ship that was way out in front of the fleet. Remember, the Fata Muhammad was owned by a private merchant, a merchant so rich he rivaled the East India Company, but someone who was not in any way officially attached to the Grand Mughal or his family. His ships were sailing with the fleet for protection, but they were free to sail as they pleased. And once they were safely beyond the Gate of Tears, it looks like they took a different route than the rest of the fleet, something that would get them home more quickly. The other ships, those that actually did belong to the Grand Mughal or his family, well, they sailed way out to sea. From the Gate of Tears, they took a wide berth out into the Indian Ocean in a, in a large arc to bring them to that approach to Surat. They did so, naturally, to avoid pirates. But by this point, so close to Mughal shores, they would certainly be safe. I mean... No pirates would be foolhardy enough or stupid enough to sail into those dangerous waters. But the other ships in the fleet, the Amity and the Susanna, the ships that were too slow to keep up with the fancy, well, they figured it out. They were sailing as hard as they could, trying to catch up with the fancy, but unable to do so. But while they were in pursuit, they encountered some ships that they did not expect to meet. We know virtually nothing about the encounter that followed. It's doubtful that Thomas II set a course to intercept the ships that he found. Amity and Susanna were brigantines, they were small, and these were 
Mughal ships. They were Ganjadao, the largest that the fleet had to offer. They were massive, ship-of-the-line-sized craft. Any one of them would have towered over Thomas II's tiny little ship. They did carry fewer guns than a first- or second-rate ship-of-the-line, but that hardly mattered here. When they fired a broadside, it was still a wall of cannonballs. Unless Thomas II was immensely foolish, and I don't think he was, he would have tried his best to avoid even one ship like that, and here were several. And it looks like he almost succeeded. Now, we don't know what ship it was that he met with. Some older histories will name the Fata Muhammad, but that's incorrect. It would have been impossible. Henry Every was way out front, and this was the same day that he captured Fata Muhammad. It looks like some historical wires got crossed there. Others have suggested that it was the Ganji Sawai. That's a ship that we are about to become quite familiar with, but that also seems unlikely, for reasons we will discuss shortly, but not impossible. I think it more likely that Thomas II and Thomas Wake happened upon the rest of the fleet. We don't know how many, but it's possible as many as 18 ships, some of them very large Ganja Dao. Probably after Henry Every captured Fatu Muhammad, but that same morning. If so, it's likely that he encountered the same kind of dense mist through which Henry Every fought. It's possible that Thomas II and Thomas Wake didn't even know the Mughal fleet was there until it was too late. I picture a fleet of large, Latin-rigged vessels coming up from the south in a relatively straight line, all of them beautifully painted and carved and ornamented. They spot a pair of small, square-rigged European ships and draw up a line, maybe more of a concave semicircle. And I wonder if the spyglass played any kind of role here. The Muslim world had been way ahead of the curve in lens-based looking-glass technology, but as far as I can tell, they did not yet have a telescopic spyglass. At least, they weren't manufacturing them. This fleet, even if they had to buy them, certainly would have been in possession of the spyglass. Thomas II and Thomas Wake probably were not. If that's the case, I wonder if the pirates even knew they were out there. But of course, it's all speculation. We don't know what happened here. We do know that the Muslim fleet opened fire on the two pirate ships. I picture that same dense mist, quiet on deck, and then the thunder of a few hundred big guns, accompanied by a brilliant red glow through the mist, and then that wall of cannonballs raining down on the two small pirate vessels. One of those cannonballs hit Captain Thomas II in the stomach. It ripped through him, probably dragging him back as it tore through his torso, before finally breaking free and leaving Thomas II on the deck, dying but not dead. Well, not yet. Reportedly, it took some time, not long, but minutes, for him to breathe his last. Thomas II, in the Indian Ocean, died in battle on the 5th of September, 1695. He was not alone, of course. 
That volley of shot had torn through those two pirate ships, killing many and wounding many, many more. And at present they were reloading. The two brigantines were damaged. Amity badly, so it looks like she lost her mainmast, but the men who were still breathing and able to move got their ships underway and ran as hard as they possibly could. Now it must have been a difficult maneuver, they were still under fire, but they both pulled it off. Amity and Susanna, with what crew remained, would make it back to Madagascar. And we will catch up with them soon enough, but not today. Today, some leagues to the east, Captains Henry Avery, Joseph Farrow, and William Mason had dropped anchor just off the coast. They were all gathered on board the fancy to count their loot, and they had a decent haul from Fatah Muhammad. A good score, but not, not great. They had a council there in which they all decided to continue the hunt. They all agreed that most of the Mughal fleet was probably on its way to Surat by now, but they might happen upon another straggler, and if not, there were still plenty of big fish out there. But as morning gave way to afternoon, as that mist dissipated, the biggest fish in the world appeared on the horizon. The pirates did not yet know it, but the ship that appeared was almost certainly at that moment carrying more wealth in her holds than any other vessel in the entire world. Now we're going to talk more about the ship itself, the Ganji Sawai, of who was on board and what it carried next time. For now I want to talk about the Gunsway. It's the same ship, but the English called her Gunsway, the distinction being, in my mind, and how I'm choosing to describe it, that the Gunsway is the ship before the pirates knew what they had in hand. Of course, as yet, she was not in hand. All they knew at the moment was that she was... She was big. A mammoth, leviathan of a ship. A titan that rivaled the greatest vessels in the Royal Navy, or the Armada de Barlavento, or the Spanish treasure fleet. Fancy was a nice ship. A frigate of 46 guns and 200 men. Portsmouth Adventure was no slouch either, nearing those statistics... And the Pearl was doing her best, but this ship was a giant. Any wise man who came into her presence would weigh anchor, turn around, and leave immediately. But of course, pirates are not known for their wisdom. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. 
Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. On board the Fancy, the pirates gathered together and held a quick conference. They decided to attack. And they did come up with a plan, at which point all of the pirates returned to their respective ships, weighed anchor, and set sail. What is to come is among the most famous pirate attacks of all time. There is still debate about the most profitable pirate attack of all time, but this is always in the discussion sometimes at number one. Beyond that, there are political ramifications, wartime ramifications. This action on which Henry Every and his companions are about to embark is going to change the world. It was debated, discussed, argued about, and written about at length in its time and in the years to follow. And we know what happened here in the Indian Ocean on the afternoon of September 5th, 1695 but we're not going to talk about what happened today. Because we, well, historians, have really only pieced together what happened in relatively recent years, the 20th century. For almost 300 years, the story as we know it, based on a true story, sure, but not quite right. So today, before we talk about what really happened, we're going to talk about the story as it was known to people for so many years. I'm going to read three versions of this history as they were told, in chronological order. The first account which we will look at comes from the life and adventures of Captain John Avery, the famous English pirate raised from a cabin boy to a king, now in possession of Madagascar, by Adrian von Broek. This account was first published in London in 1709. Von Broek writes, quote, being victualled afresh, he, Every, incited some persons who had been buccaneers to join him, and with all imaginable expeditions set sail to cruise in the Indian Sea, where, after an oath taken of every individual mariner, for secrecy in the affair they were going in pursuit of, he tacked about backwards and forwards for a considerable time before any prize of value came in sight. At last, fortune threw in his way a vessel of great burthen, that is, burden, he means a big ship, for she carried near a thousand men, with guns proportionable, was freighted with the richest merchandises of all the East, and had got a prize of greater value about her. I mean the granddaughter of Aurangzeb, who was then great mobile, and commanded an empire almost as extensive as any known quarter of the world. 
The force of the ship and the vast number of soldiers that appeared on its deck at first gave no small uneasiness to Captain Avery, who was loath to miscarry in his first attempt, and seemed doubtful of success. But, having collected himself, he considered his own strength, the bravery of his own men, and their wonderful skill in naval raconteurs, while the numbers of the others would rather be a hindrance to him. And that's how he wrote it. To him, to apostrophe E-M, would rather be a hindrance to him than an advantage. The English gave but a broadside or two when the Indians struck their colors and resigned themselves to the mercy of their enemies. The cargo of this ship was so very rich, you know what, we're going to leave it there. As I said, we'll talk about the cargo next time. This account isn't terrible. It's closer to the truth, at least, than the other two we are going to talk about. In response to this book, which is a fiction, outside of the attack on the Mughal fleet, Daniel Defoe wrote The King of Pirates. It was written in a first-hand account, and it's close to my own heart. He begins it with the assumption that Henry Avery sailed on the first and second Pacific adventures. When they come to the day of the attack, Daniel Defoe writes, quote, we spied three ships coming right up to us with the wind. We could easily see they were not Europeans by their sails. And take note of that. And begun to prepare ourselves for a prize, not for a fight, but were a little disappointed when we found the first ship full of guns and full of soldiers. And in condition, had she been managed by English sailors, to have fought two such ships as ours were. However, we resolved to attack her if she had been full of devils, as she was full of men. Accordingly, when we came near them, we fired a gun with shot, as a challenge. And he's saying there that they fired a gun without a ball, loaded with shot, but no ammunition. He continues, They fired again immediately, three or four guns, but fired them so confusedly that we could easily see they did not understand their business. When we considered how to lay them on board, and so to come athwart them, if we could, but falling, for want of wind, open to them, we gave them a fair broadside. We could easily see, by the confusion that was on board, that they were frightened out of their wits. They fired here a gun, and there a gun, and some on that side that was from us, as well as those that were next to us. The next thing we did was to lay them on board, which we did presently, and then gave them a volley of our small shot, which, as they stood so thick, killed a great many of them, and made all the rest run down under their hatches, crying like creatures bewitched. In a word, we presently took the ship, and having secured her men, we chased the other two. One was chiefly filled with women, and the other with lumber. Upon the whole, as the granddaughter of the great mogul was our prize in the first ship, so the second was her women, or, in a word, her household, her eunuchs, all the necessaries of her wardrobe, her stables, and of her kitchen. End quote. I love Daniel Defoe. Attack her if she were full of devils, as she was of men. Just, just a great writer. But there are a few things I want you to take into account there. First, as I mentioned, the pirates noticed that she was an Indian ship because of her Latin sails. Then, there's no mention there of Captain Avery's cowardice, but there is great mention of the cowardice of the Mughal soldiers. His tactics, 
aren't really that close to the truth. There were, after all, three ships there on the day in reality, and he only makes mention of the one. Finally, again, the granddaughter of the Mughal is mentioned, and this time, her entire household. Our first passage by Adrian von Broek goes into great detail about Henry Avery's return to Madagascar, where he raised himself up as a king with that Grand Mughal's granddaughter as his queen. Daniel Defoe spends less time on that story. Around the same time that The King of Pirates was published, though, a play was released, written by a man named Charles Johnson. Now, this is not to be confused with Captain Charles Johnson, author of A General History. This was a playwright. Although it's not unthinkable that whoever actually wrote A General History of the Pirates used that as an inspiration for his fictitious captain, Charles Johnson. That play, the successful pirate, although Henry Avery is never named, is clearly based on Henry Avery. He's played for laughs in the play. He's a fool. But he does kidnap and then marry the Grand Mughal's granddaughter, who naturally runs circles around him, plays him for a fool every chance she gets. But that play, in addition to the name of the author, appears to have influenced Captain Charles Johnson, whoever he or she may really have been, in a general history of the robberies and murders of the most notorious pirates. This account, from 1724, was, for almost 300 years, the most accepted version of events. I've got, as you might imagine, a lot of books on pirates, and many of the older books, from the middle 20th century and before, all have chapters on Henry Avery that ape, or that's not strong, plagiarize. They plagiarize Captain Charles Johnson completely, word for word in many cases. Captain Charles Johnson wrote in The Life of Captain Avery in a general history of the pirates, quote, Having consulted what was to be done, they resolved to sail out on a cruise. Near the river Indus, the man at the masthead spied a sail, upon which they gave it chase, and as they came nearer they perceived her to be a tall ship, and fancied she might be a Dutch East Indiaman, homeward bound. But she proved a better prize. When they fired at her to bring two, she hoisted Mogul's colors, and seemed to stand upon her defense. Avery only cannonaded at a distance, and some of his men began to suspect that he was not the hero they took him for. However, the sloops made use of their time, and, coming one on the bow and the other on the quarter of the ship, clapped her on board and entered her, upon which she immediately struck her colors and yielded. She was one of the great mogul's ships, and there were in her several of the greatest persons of his court, among whom it was said was one of his daughters, who were going to a pilgrimage in Mecca. End quote. And then he goes on to talk about the riches as well. It's all very stereotypical riches of the Orient stuff. The first thing I take serious issue with, as you may have noticed by this point, is the assertion that the pirates thought she might be an East Indiaman. That ship was a Ganja Dao. It had, as we have mentioned several times, Latin-rigged sails. Big, triangular sails. Hard to miss. Daniel Defoe, of course, got that right, because Daniel Defoe knew a thing or two about sailing. 
and that makes me think that maybe Captain Charles Johnson did not. And here, in the strongest terms yet, Captain Johnson refers to Henry Avery's cowardice. The truth of that, well, that's a complicated story. A story that we're going to need to look at the real history to uncover. But to look at the real history, all three of these so-called histories are missing one very big thing, a singular vital element. They're missing the story from the other side. The story from the deck of the Ganji Sawai. All three versions tell a tale in which the pirates come up, fire a couple of shots, and then the ship just surrenders. That's not what happened. It's good propaganda, obviously, and... Next time, we will discuss how that particular falsehood became accepted fact. But we're going to do so through the lens of, as far as we can tell here in the early 21st century, accurate factual history. Because they all get one thing right. On September the 5th, 1695, Henry Avery and his companions did capture the greatest prize in the entire world. I have a mind to write a book. I'm thinking about calling it something like The Lives and Times of Captain Henry Every. Because there are just so many different versions of this pirate. You know, we've been talking about him for some time now, and I've read so many pages about what he did, but I still don't know who he was. Was he a coward and a con man, or was he a stout and resolute naval officer turned arch-pirate? Was he a king or a pauper? We aren't done talking about him or the effect that his piracies will have, so we will have some time to figure that out, but I'm fascinated by all of the different versions of Henry Every and why those different versions are depicted the way that they are. It's part of why I wanted to look today at those three different stories about Henry Every, and why I think writing that book might actually be worth my time. But on that note, I did want to mention one thing. I recently put a couple of books up on Amazon. Not mine, I didn't write them, they're old books. Books with which we should all be familiar here. The Buccaneers of America by Alexandra Exquimelin, and The Dangerous Voyage and Bold Assaults of Captain Bartholomew Sharp by Basil Ringrose. In the near future, I'll be putting up Dampier's A New Voyage Around the World and eventually A General History of the Pirates. Now, I didn't plan on talking about this, but some of you appear already to have found them. These aren't a fundraising, money-making scheme for me. The percentage I'd be making off any sales are tiny, Less than a dollar. Now, if you want to read a copy, certainly go pick one up. But the reason I put them up there in the first place is... Well, the terms and conditions to put an audiobook that's in the public domain on Audible. I want to release audiobook versions of all four of those books, and maybe a few more in the future. And to do so, I need to put these print or ebook versions up for sale. All of which is to say, if you have stumbled upon them by this point and wondered why they're up there, there's your reason why. And with that said, I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, anybody who has left us ratings or reviews or recommended this show. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. 
Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you can always do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.